Hey, so Church, I'm coming in for another midweek podcast, and I thought a really appropriate place to hang out this moment is talking about the obvious elephant in the room, which is this this week has been dominated by protests, protesting the, the death of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Brianna Taylor and locally Sean Reed. And it's been, yeah, we've just seen that, but curfew enforcements and cities across the country, violent and nonviolent protests, racial tensions could not be more heavy. And I wanna just ask, how did we get here? How did, how did we arrive at this moment? Because we actually, it actually kind of makes sense. Now, I, I will say, I don't condone violent protests. I don't think that's good. I, I'm not here to defend violent protests. I'm here just to say I understand. Understanding is not condoning. It's not saying this is right. No, I, violent protests, that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus said, hey, turn the other cheek. But I also understand the voice that says, do you really realize how many times we've turned to the other cheek? Now, that, again, that doesn't, doesn't condone violence, but again, that's to say, I, I understand, and, and more than I did growing up. I grew up in a dominantly white and partially Latino community, and there was really not much of an African-American population, so I did not see much of the white African-American racial tensions. I just I kind of thought, hey, we're post-racial because it just wasn't present. We did, again, have a Latino population, and there was a literal other side of the tracks. On the north side was the Latino population. On the south side was the white population. The white school, or the, yeah, the white south schools were, were much better and much, uh, you know, much more favorable than the north schools. And you saw that when we all fed into the same high school. But again, we didn't have African Americans, and so we just didn't see that as a part of, 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 of life. And and I remember growing up and seeing things like affirmative action, like I, oh, I remember the classic thing was uh, that I remember finding out was that at Michigan State Law School, they had a point system to admit their their students, and there were points assigned to certain merits and the points given to you for being non-white were more points than the points for receiving a perfect score on the LSAT. And I remember thinking, that's crazy. You're, 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 you're taking away, or, or you're not giving the same advantage, you're giving a greater advantage to someone for not being white than, than for having a perfect score on their LSAT for going to law school? And, and I didn't get it, but I, I get it now. And, and so, yeah, I just want to kind of map where we've been and how we got to the late spring of 2020 post, well, not post, but in the midst of a global pandemic. We're simultaneously experiencing a national crisis where people have broken social distancing in order to clash in streets and protests. And I've been a part of 
being downtown a couple times. Uh, I was a part of a, a peaceful uh, interfaith protest on Sunday with many of our, our members. Uh, I went down with a number of our members uh, on Tuesday to prayer walk the streets, particularly just to pray for for peaceable rest uh, for uh, peace peaceful protests and for justice to be given and for justice to be filled through not just George Floyd's case but through throughout all of the systems because ultimately we are in a moment of systemic racism being very prevalent and so I, I think the appropriate place to start here is starting with slavery obviously is a horrific scar on the face of American history when it comes to our most grievous sins and I will also say again as a part of my caveats I, I said in my earlier podcast the good news for all people who are in Christ is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus so my point in talking about all this is not to heap on condemnation even as I say I have fault many of us have fault but I both have fault. I can apologize. I can repent of that individually or communally. Most likely, most of us have communal fault. We are part of communities that have benefited from certain systems uh, that have been built upon ever since uh, slavery in our country. And we can repent communally. That's a, that's a real thing and a good thing. Historically, many communities in the Bible particularly where saw sin as communal and repented communally. Would, com would communally fast for sin of an individual or of, of uh, por a portion of the community. And that's a good thing. And I can do that without condemnation. But yes, yeah, slavery, a major black eye on the American face. And that ends. And then within, after the Emancipation Proclamation, in the Civil War, nine of the 11 states of the Confederacy that seceded put vagrancy laws on the books. Vagrancy laws are laws that make it illegal to not have a job. So you can be arrested for not having a job. Of course, recently freed slaves, most of them in those southern states, did not have jobs and were not able to get jobs. And so they were now arrestable for not being able to get jobs. They also had laws like mischief laws and, and laws uh, for arrestment or arresting people for insulting gestures. And these were vaguely worded enough that there was, you could really arrest anyone at any given time if you saw them being mischievous or they, you saw them doing something that was an insulting gesture. Eight of those nine states begin a, convicting, a convict leasing program to plantations, meaning that you can now lease out convicts to work on your plantation, which is a lot like slavery, except it's harsher. Because if you're not someone's personal property, it, when you are someone's personal property, you care about how it's treated and you care about the long-term survival and well-being of that person, that slave, that, that piece of your property. But if you're just leasing them from the state and they're convict, you don't care as much. And that continues 20 years after slavery. And that gets us close to the turn of the century 
and by the twenty, uh, the turn of the twentieth century, nineteen hundred, every state in the South has mandated segregation on the books. That includes segregation in areas including, but not limited to, schools, churches, housing, jobs, restrooms, restaurants, hotels, hospitals, prisons, funeral homes, morgues, and cemeteries. In 1816, this isn't just a, a Southern thing. You say, well, that's the South, we're Indiana. In 1816, Indiana is founded and their constitution constitutionalizes the idea that there will not be slavery in Indiana. We're a free state, but it also prohibits blacks the right to vote. Then you get in 1896, right before the turn of the 20th century, Plessy versus Ferguson, which was a case that was seen by the US Supreme Court, which there was a man Homer Plessy, who was 90% European, 10% black. And so he looked pretty white. He looked, he, he presented mainly European white. But because of the one drop rule, if you have one drop of black or African-American blood, you are black, you are African-American. And you must identify as such in all the laws uh, pertaining to blacks and African-Americans, uh, they, they pertain to you. So Plessy, though he presented European white had to, whenever he walked into a segregated area, declare he was a black man. So he is used, he's used as a test case because they say, okay, let's just see how this works. So a man who looks pretty white walks onto a white train, declares he's a black man, and is arrested. It goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. So we're not in the South anymore. We are at the U.S. Supreme Court to get this settled. And the U.S. Supreme Court rules for Ferguson saying that, yes, this person can be arrested, Herman Plessy can be arrested, because he has at least one drop of, of black blood, and therefore he was in a segregated area, and they do not overturn it because they say that ultimately this reflects the customs and traditions of the area, it preserves peace and good order, and laws cannot overcome social prejudice. And so they also coined the phrase, separate does not mean inferior. So this is the separate but equal. This is where this comes from, 1896. And so in that, you begin the separate but equal stage of American history, and you separate all those things that I said. Again, schools and churches and housing and restrooms and jobs, and etc. And so you get things like Crispus Attucks, a historic black high school that is, still exists. It is on uh, near IUPY, um, right off of uh, the, the, the exit there and, and Martin Luther King, uh, and that school, though it is not open as a public school anymore, still stands as a, a symbol and as a museum, um, and as a, a, just a place where, uh, of, of Indiana history, though it was started as an all black school by board members and the board members were the KKK. They were, uh, members in involved in the, the KKK to create an all black school you can find out a lot more about what I'm talking about, particularly as the racial history or the history of systemic racism applies to Indiana in the PBS documentary, Addicts, the School That Opened a City. You can get that free online. You can just Google Addicts, the School That Opened a City, and you can find a link to watch it free online. It's very good. And so you get Christmas Addicts um, and, and schools like that across the country and until... Eh, kind of, until 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. 
1954, Brown versus Board of Education, because Eisenhower uh, was uh, had put uh, justices on the Supreme Court that were uh, more sympathetic to the plight of African Americans and were more integrationist in their thinking when it comes to uh, you know, segregation versus integration, uh, and because of blacks and whites serving together in, in World War II and beginning to develop more relationships, you see across the country more of a favorable attitude, attitude towards African-Americans. And so 1954, Brown versus Board of Education says that we must no longer be separate but equal. We must be now together and equal. And so that is the forced integration of schools, saying that the continued integration of a person based off their skin color could cause permanent psychological damage that could continue to make a person feel inferior that could those effects might never go away and so everyone accepted it wholeheartedly and we lived happily ever after except in 1956 the southern manifesto was signed and there was 128 congress members from the south and 101 of them signed a pledge to maintain segregation by all possible means and so this, uh, in this time, leading up to this, uh, the Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, and after you get the rise of private schools, many of them Christian in title, it, they rise up to become segregated schools. Uh, you get uh, an example of this is Bob Jones. Bob Jones University is a university that was founded and was did not allow blacks until 1970. And it did not allow interracial dating until the year 2000. You get in Indianapolis, 1970 is UNIGOV. UNIGOV is the program or the government bill that is was the a leader in the American way of unifying cities with their surrounding areas, particularly as cities grew into surrounding areas. And so Indianapolis incorporates much of the surrounding area with a bill, UNIGOV. It unifies all of Marion County as one city. And in this, you get townships, where these townships were former communities that were now integrated into Indianapolis, integrated into the economy. So you, you prevent a lot of the, the uh, donating of the inner city by, by integrating the tax dollars throughout all of Marion County, throughout all of Marion County. And so, again, this was actually beneficial for the county, except it stops short of integrating schools. And so IPS is on its own. And the other school districts like Pike and Warren and Wayne are on their own when compared to the more favorable districts like Washington Township and, and Perry Township. And if you live in the city now, you know, if you are going to be in a district for schooling, you want to be in Washington or Perry. Washington is the, the north side. I mean, these are things like Meridian Hills, Crow's Nest, um, Spring Hill. Um, Perry is, you know, the south side. And then Wayne is like the area of Speedway uh, on the west side. Warren, of course, is on the east side. Uh, Pike, Pike is Pike on the northwest side. Um, and so that, that was the history of schools. But then, of course, let's just go back and look at the history of home ownership. So 1930s, in the 1930s, going through World War II, World War One, World War Two, coming through World War II and out of World War II, 1930s through the 1950s, you get the housing boom. Americans are overwhelmingly encouraged to purchase homes, particularly uh, post-World War II. And they do this through the GI Bill. The GI Bill is giving all veterans uh, benefits to rebuild their lives after coming back from war. And so they do things like create suburbs. And so they're like, hey, let's just build new homes. And they become 
uh, many of them dominantly white communities. And that's partially and due because of the GI Bill. The GI Bill was distributed by local officials, which was given very disproportionately to, uh, to non-white veterans, such as in, in New York and northern New Jersey suburbs. There were about 67,000 mortgages insured by the GI Bill. And of those 67,000 mortgages, fewer than 100 were taken out by non-white veterans. I'm guessing it was not because they didn't apply. Or if they didn't apply, it wasn't because they thought if they did apply, they would certainly get it. Which is always interesting because the GI Bill is, is a different form of government welfare that was provided to veterans to help rebuild their lives. And it was a good program. But many people sometimes who look at African-American communities, uh, minority communities, and say, man, we're just providing them welfare. And we're not giving them the, the, the idea of teaching them how to fish. We're just giving them fish. Fail to recognize that the GI Bill was giving veterans, dominantly white veterans, a lot of fish. And yeah, with those fish, we were maybe, I guess you could argue, able to teach ourselves to fish. But also, it's just like we still have all those fish. And so two-thirds of a person's wealth is in their home equity. And at the, during this housing boom, I mean, so two, yeah, again, like two-thirds of your wealth is your home equity. Likely. If you have home equity, if you don't, then you, though you might have a decent amount of income and money in the bank, you don't have nearly the wealth as people who own a home. And so during the home ownership boom of, uh, from the 1930s to the 1950s, uh, non-whites, particularly blacks, were mainly blocked from owning homes, and this was the concept called redlining. And redlining was done by the FHA, the Federal Housing Act, which drew lines in neighborhoods around which they would give loans, which were wealthier white neighborhoods, and which ones they would not give loans, which were poor black neighborhoods. Uh, in 1948, during the building of the suburbs in Minneapolis, obviously a, a significant city right now when it comes to uh, racial inequality. And this is not the South, this is the North, the very North. I mean, it snows there like 20, you know, or not 20, uh, like basically, you know, 11 months of the year it snows in Minneapolis because it's, it's so, so North. And, you know, July, like 4th of July, it's not snowing and that's it. And maybe even some years, but I don't think that's true, but it kind of is. Either way, in Minneapolis, 40% of new housing development in 1948 had covenants against black people owning homes. This was the, how the suburbs of Minneapolis were developed. Um, and that wasn't just true in Minneapolis. That was true of most cities in, in America. In 1950, up until 1950, the Realtor Housing Code prohibited selling houses to blacks in white neighborhoods. So it, before 19, up until 1950, if you were a realtor, you would lose your real, real estate license for selling a white neighborhood home to a black person or family. And so not only that, the FHA, Federal Housing Act, again, recommended interstate positions throughout cities, and they dominantly drew them through black neighborhoods at the border of white neighborhoods, doing two things effectively deeply dividing black and white neighborhoods from each other, making strong borders, as well as because they went through the black neighborhoods, they disproportionately displaced African Americans out of their homes with little to no aid 
to get new homes, which they, you know, whether they were renting, whether they owned, whatever they were, it was like, now you don't have your home. I don't know if you know this, if you move, that's an expensive thing to do. A lot of times, if you are already low income, if you have to move, you can't afford a moving truck. So you just leave all your furniture behind and you have to start over new. Every time you move, it's a clean slate. And now it was a clean slate without their homes, without a lot of their possessions, and no little to no aid to replace that. I-65, historically, was meant to go through Broad Ripple. And how nice would that be? I mean, it's impossible to get to Broad Ripple. I mean, just if you don't live near Broad Ripple, and now with the red, with the red line, uh, oh, that's interesting, <laughs> the red line. <laughs> Redlining, red line, interesting. The red line uh, of Indigo uh, that goes down college, now that's almost just cut, cut Broad Ripple off to me. And I, I, I live like arguably between Mass Ave and Broad Ripple. I mean, we could get, Mass Ave's a little closer, but you know, I can get to Mass Ave and Broad Ripple. Used to be able to get them pretty evenly. And now I'm just like, Broad Ripple's dead to me. That red line, I, I can't get through the 54th without going, sitting through at least three or four light sequences. And eh, yeah, not about that. So, unless I guess I took the red line, but you know, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was meant to go through Broad Ripple. I-65 was, but the last minute, the FHA, or I, I guess I don't know, technically, this was the FHA, FHA's recommendation. In fact, I think it was just the general population of Indy blocked that, and instead, it went through the west side of downtown by Crispus Attucks High School, a black neighborhood that was built there for a reason. Uh, an all-black high school was built right there for a reason. And it went up through Pike, and also very lower income and dominantly non-white neighborhood. And it separated out neighborhoods like Heron Morton, Meridian Hills, Broad Ripple, where the interstate did not go through. Not only that, during about that same time, IUPUI was expanding just their medical program, a lot of their buildings, and so they were building new parts of IUPUI, which now you see, of course, near Christmas Attucks High School. And that was, again, a dominantly black neighborhood. And when they built that, they relocated one of the largest African-American populations in our city with little to no aid to purchase new homes. That's why many African-Americans at that point were pushed out to the west side, places like Hawville, the near east side, Places like Willard Park, where the Westminster Center resides, these are historically impoverished, non-white areas. Then, 1960s, 1970s, factories vacate the cities to the suburbs. If you think about it, it's actually very expensive to put a factory in a city because factories are it's easier to build out than up uh particularly if you need then to load uh you know stuff you have to load by you know you don't have to like you know crane things up to you know hot, taller stories or floors you can just drive around to other entrances um you know uh land is cheaper outside of the city so again like that that's the point you just build it out and out and out and so the factories mainly vacate outside of the city in the 1970s, 70% 70 of African Americans had blue-collar jobs. They were working in factories. By 1986, 16 years later, that had dropped to 28% having blue-collar jobs. Well, that's okay. I'm sure they got white-collar jobs. 
or they had no jobs and their ways of making income had left them. What do you do if you can't make money? You, two things happen. You try to escape through the consumption of things like drugs and alcohol. That's, I mean, historically, you see large periods and populations of unemployment and the use of drugs and alcohol goes up. But of course, beyond that, why does that go up? Not only because you're, the soul's gotta get out, you gotta try to escape, escape this behavior because you're despairing, you have no work or no ability to provide your family and that's a really depressing place to be. But you get desperate and you start selling those things like drugs, bootlegging alcohol or you know, other things like that. Again, it kind of makes sense. And so you get now in the 1980s and 1990s, the war on drugs. So now all of a sudden we gotta say, well, there's all these people selling drugs. Well, of course they're selling drugs because they have no jobs or houses or, or, or income, but they're selling drugs and we need to stop that. So in 1981 to 1991, the Department of Defense increases their budget to, uh, to police drugs from $33 million to $1 billion, billion with a B. The uh, department uh, or the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, this is, you know, DEA, like, you know, what Breaking Bad follows. Um, they increased their budget from $86 million to also $1 billion. Meanwhile, where's that money come from? You're like, well, that's got to come from somewhere. We got to, you know, I mean, you make a budget, you increase one, you got to decrease another. Well, they did that. The National Institute of Drug Abuse had a $250 million budget that gets shrunk down to $50 million. Of course, that's not nearly to get you up to a billion, but that, that gets you some chunk of change. The Department of Education uh, for, uh, had a drug education budget of $14 million to decrease to $3 million. Uh, I, I get that that doesn't account for all of the, I mean, there had to be other moving of accounts, but that's where they got some of it. In 1986, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act had a larger, harsher penalties uh, instituted for crack cocaine, which was associated with African-Americans versus powder cocaine, which was associated with white Americans. Drug crimes or allowing uh, drug crimes or the selling or, or use of drugs on your, uh, on your property would get you evicted from public housing and then would make you ineligible for public housing, ineligible for food stamps, and you had to check yes on job applications saying that you had a, a previous misdemeanor or felony, making it very difficult with a drug crime to get a job. And so now you got no money, you got no house, you're ineligible for public housing, you don't have food stamps, you can't get a job. That's why leading up to a person's arrest, a, a, a study, I, I don't have the year on this, so I can look it up later, $12,000 a year is the average income of a person leading up to the arrest. You have $12,000 of annual income, and guess what? You start getting desperate. You sell drugs, you possess drugs to try to break up the, the depressing world you're in. And then 66% of people who are, are released are rearrested in three years. Why? Because you can't get a job. You can't get a job. Uh, this, by the way, is for mostly uh, all these, uh, by and large, are nonviolent crimes. These are things like drug possession. Um, yeah, that's another thing, too. Of the being arrested for drugs, cleaning up the war on drugs, 
Only 20% was for selling drugs, 80% was for possessing drugs, and a large majority of that was for things like marijuana. Yeah, all right. Uh, meanwhile, you get the police continuing to militarize. They increased their weapons during this time. Uh, in New Haven, uh, I believe the police chief was quoted as saying, uh, I was offered things like tanks and bazookas, anything I wanted. Now, I'm guessing that's a, a an embellishment, but I, you get his point. And I guess maybe it's not, but whether it is, whether it's not, you get what he's saying. He all of a sudden to enforce drugs. Uh, the war on drugs could do a lot, do anything he wanted, basically. Uh, No-knock entries. Uh, let's go to Minneapolis again. Minneapolis in 1986 to 1996, during that decade. 1986, by the way, a lot of this uh, revolves around 1986. The year I was born, ooh, the war on drugs was raging. 1986 to 1996. 1986, you had 35 no-knock entries in the city of Minneapolis. Ten years later, 1996, you had over 700. Well, crime went up. Obviously, drugs went up. Crime went up. Maybe. Or maybe it was connected to the idea that federal grant money to police departments was directly connected to their drug arrest numbers. More drug arrests, more federal grants to police departments. So, in 86, 35 no-knock entries, entries, in 96, over 700. Also, civil forfeiture meant that, the, that drug enforcement agencies were allowed to keep most of the confiscated property when making drug arrests. Now, of course, you're like, well, of course, they got to keep the drugs. Yeah, but that wasn't all they kept. They got to keep all property and all valuables. Well, nearly all. And then in the 1990s, public housing goes down funding. Uh, funding is cut by $17 billion. Where did that go? You might say. It went to prisons. $19 billion. It was increased by it at that same time. This makes, at the time, you had, uh, in, in the 80s, you had 41,000 drug convictions in prison. And then, decade later, after that increase, you get 500,000 drug convicts. That's why you get, over the course of 25 years, 350,000 incarcerated individuals, 350,000 up to 2.3 million incarcerated individuals. Our incarceration population grew by that in 25 years. That is the highest prison population in the world by a long shot. And of those, one in 106 are white men, uh, or I should say one in 106 of the white population, the white male population is incarcerated. Of the black male population, one in 14 are incarcerated. Even though a national drug abuse study in the year 2000 said that they were studying students, white students were seven times more likely to use cocaine, eight times more likely to use crack, and seven, or seven times more likely to use heroin. They are one-third more likely to sell illegal drugs. This is again being white students over black students. And they're three times more likely to have a drug-related ER visit, or they had three times more drug-related ER visits. I don't even have time to study into all the statistics about uh, about people who are pulled over and, and your, how that's affected by race. I mean, that's it, it, as well as I just feel like you probably had a number overload at this point. So let's just focus on Philando Castile. 
Philando Castile was pulled over in July of 2016 in, outside of St. Paul uh, in the Minneapolis area of Minnesota. Uh, and he, at that point, had a gun permit. And he told the officer, I have a gun. As he went to reach for his gun permit, was shot and killed with his partner and four-year-old daughter. In a 13-year period leading up to that, so 2003 to 2016, Philando Castile was pulled over 49 times, mainly, mainly for minor, minor infractions, things like failing to signal when turning into a parking lot or tail light, tail light out. I'm having trouble talking right now. I, I personally drove my car for what I think was three years without the right headlight. It went out. I got pulled over twice for it and it was given two warnings. And that was over the course of four years. He was pulled over 13 times, or sorry, 49 times in 13 years, mainly for minor infractions. And now you say mainly for minor infractions. There was definitely some major infractions then. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I don't know that that changes it too much in my mind. This, where we arrive to right now, in the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis in 2020, and then the riots that have ensued across the nation, we're here for a reason. It's not right for violent protesting. I admit there can be, maybe it's not all protests are just organic, maybe there's some that may or may not have some level of engineering, but even the engineering of protests, there's a reason why groups are wanting to engineer these protests. Because what would you do at this point? Again, I'm not condoning. I'm just saying, I get it. I understand doesn't mean I think it's right. It just means like, yeah, okay, I, I, I get it. Because I, me personally, Kent, a Heinz 57 white European male, mainly French, like 25%, I went to college at a private school, Butler, and had it paid for in full by my parents and grandparents. They did that through hard work, wise investing, and because they were allowed to purchase homes. And two-thirds, on average, two-thirds of their income is tied up in their homes. Or not their income, their, their, their wealth. I bought a home in a transitional neighborhood, Mapleton Fall Creek. I live right, right off of Fall Creek in college. At that time, through the Mapleton Fall Creek CDC, I was able to purchase that home. My, my wife and I were able to purchase that home, even though it had been, it, I, we bought it in, what was it? May of 2013. Oh, actually, I guess we closed in June of 2013. It had been off the market until that May since November of 2012. In November of 2012, an African-American woman with her children attempted to put an offer in on that house. Mapleton Fall Creek CDC because their their mission was to 
try to keep those who historically had been in the neighborhood and those who are lower income and those who are disadvantaged in houses and in home ownership worked with her for months and months and months when she continued to have financing fall through. Finally, in May of 2013, she they couldn't wait anymore and she had one last housing or uh, loan fallout and so they put the house back on the market. We learned this after the fact. My wife and I viewed it. That week it came up on the market. We put in an offer in because we liked it. We even said, hey, what about the lot on the side? They said, it's yours if you want it. They had a cash flow issue at that time, I think probably because they tried to work for this woman for so long and it failed to sell the house and they needed to desperately sell. So they gave us the side lot, a double lot for free. And we purchased it for $110,000 minus closing costs. Now, on a Zillow estimate, which, you know, it's pretty rough, but still, rough estimate, Zillow, it's estimated at $250,000. It is more than doubled in value. Yeah. My father-in-law built a garage in the back. Yeah, we, we cultivated the land. But also through my father-in-law, and his inheritance, when his father died, he used part of that inheritance to help purchase us our Nissan Quest for our family van and to landscape our double lot and fence it in with a vinyl fence. It's awesome. I'm grateful. That was given to me. I'm so grateful. That garage was given to me. This house was given to me. That lot was given to me. My college education at Butler, completely given to me. I was able to participate in the sequence of success, which is the sequence of success. Here's how you do it. Graduate high school. Don't have a kid in your teens. Get married before you have that child. You do that and overwhelmingly you will be successful. And so many people have said to to people in poor communities, you have the power, just graduate from high school, don't have a kid in your teens, get married before you do. I was able to do that because I saw that over and I saw that in my family, my family, I came from a two parent home. I saw in my community overwhelmingly people graduate high school. They didn't have children in their 20s. They, uh, they got married before they had children, mainly though, not entirely all the time in my, in my high school, but mainly. And even if they did, they had large support systems to help them if they got pregnant in high school, which we had a decent amount. I mean, I remember, I, again, I was in West Nebraska. I remember one time we, I was talking with a person in Denver and we were counting the people in our high school that were pregnant and we were even, you know, a small town in West Nebraska to a high school in Denver, same amount of pregnant women, uh, pregnant girls. But they had all those, I, all those in my school had supportive families. I mean, I think about Pastor Phil Edwards, who was a pastor at our church at Soma, he remember him telling a story about a girl coming up to him when he was in his teens saying, how about you and I have a baby together? And Phil at that point said, I, I don't think that's wise. I don't think that's good. And she said, well, my mama had a baby when she was my age and my grandma did. And what makes me better than them? Praise God, I have gotten advantage after advantage, after scholarship, after car, 
after bonus lot, after, hey, you apply and you're at the right time and here you go, here's a house and it doubled in value. And we could go through my life. I've got these things because I'm connected with people who care about me, who have influence, who have resources. They're able to connect me with other people who have resources and influence. And in that time, I've made a ton of mistakes, but I've had a thick layer of community to absorb them and help me get back on my feet. Praise God. Praise God for those things for me. But not everybody has had those. My sons and daughter have all of those now available to them. Not everyone's sons and daughters do. I have benefited from systemic racism that began when we captured and enforced race-based slavery. And yes, things have gotten better since then, but they're far from we're dealt the same cards at birth. And there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And I can say, I'm sorry for ways that I've been ignorant to this. I'm sorry for ways that I've, I've maybe, I mean, I can't think of something right now, but I'm just guessing there's probably a moment where I, I could have spoke up and said, hey, I'm getting an advantage here. I mean, actually, I'm, I'm trying to think, did I find out all that about that woman in my house after the fact, or did we know as we bought? It's funny. I don't even remember at this point. And so I have fault. I have no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Praise God for that. So that's how we got here. Father God, I pray for my African-American brothers and sisters. I pray for my non-white brothers and sisters. I pray for our country. I pray for, for protests to remain nonviolent. I pray for if there are those engineering violent protests for that to be thwarted, Lord. I pray, Lord, though I understand, Lord, we, I do not wish for this to become a m moment of continued violence. I pray, though, Lord, that where there is nonviolent protests, I pray that we would hear our brothers and sisters as they yell, I can't breathe. I pray, Lord, for our country, for our church, for the Near East Side. Have mercy on us, please. Amen.